Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hi, my name's Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Stephen Ball from the Institute of Education in London. Now, Stephen is one of the world's most recognised education researchers. He's a leading voice in the sociology of education and a founding name in the area of policy sociology. So it's a real treat to catch up with him and get his thoughts on everything from Foucault to the state of pandemic education. And we also talk through his recent provocative writing on the need for education researchers to move on from redemptive attempts to save schools and schooling. But before all that, I first asked Stephen to try to describe the issues and ideas that have been driving his work over the past 40 years. I can construct various narratives of my, my interests. Um, one would be that there's this, this duality that emerged between a modernist interest in issues around social class and inequality and a more structuralist, post-structuralist interest in issues around subjectivity and governance, which are more generalised. Um, and they, they come together uh, at the, at the point of focus on, on questions of policy or the politics of education. And one way of thinking about what I've been doing, particularly over the last 30 years, is um, trying to make sense of the shift from a modernist welfare episteme um, to a, a neoliberal episteme, each of which has different principles and different epistemic foundations related to notions of governance and subjectivity. So that would be that would be one way of assembling my interests. So I, I continue to be to be focused on those processes of neoliberalization, those processes of shift and change and the implications they have for for what it is we have become, who it is that we are. Um, how we understand ourselves, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to others. And you've addressed these issues, I mean, all around the world and in all different areas of education. So I'm really interested how those issues that you just outlined play out somewhere in, say, your recent work on India and, and policy networks and policy uh, mobilities in that particular context. The particular policies that I've been focusing on, and I've looked specifically at, at both privatisation and, and the role of philanthropy, that's linked to changes in the nature of governance and the nature of the state, the move from government to governance or network governance, whereby new kinds of actors and agents are involved in the work of government, but also new technologies are involved in, in the work of government, that we come to be governed differently. So we come to be produced as uh, consumer or commercial or enterprising subjects within a, a neoliberal epistemic um, framework as opposed to welfare citizens uh, that we might have been produced as previously. So one of the things is I'm interested in how those, those, those technologies like philanthropy and privatisation move about and do work in different locations. And so you, you kind of located yourself uh, within kind of a post-structuralist approach at the beginning. And I mean, one of the people you're really well known for using is Foucault. 
in, t- in terms of making sense of education. So, I mean, what has Foucault brought to your thinking? Uh, and also, I guess, as a second question, what 21st century thinkers do you see as continuing this, this tradition of thought? Well, in a, in a way, the, there are two answers or two aspects to the, the role of Foucault. What, one is a, a more general one, um, which is that, that Foucault makes me think uh, or in some ways enables me to think. He, he, he provokes me. He, he, he makes me realise that things are not as necessary as all that, as he puts it. He makes me realise that while not everything is bad, everything is dangerous, as he also puts it. So he creates the possibility attitude, as he puts it, an attitude towards the social world, an attitude of critique as opposed to criticism, an attitude of problematization, of, of seeing things that we take for granted as natural and normal and commonsensical is in fact um, contingent and, and, and having historical uh, basis to their existence and the possibility of, of change. So there's that aspect of, of a style um, of thinking that, that Foucault has influenced me through. But then there's, there's also, a, uh, if you like, well, it's practical, they're both practical, but a more practical aspect, which is his techniques and methods and concepts. So, so notions of, of governmentality, discourse, uh, his genealogy or genealogical approach, the archaeological approach, as techniques and, and possibilities, as tools, as he puts it, a toolbox of possibilities, they have provided me with way, the ways and means of doing research. So on the one hand, there's the, the, the orientation, the attitude to research, and then on the other hand, the ways and means of, of doing that research. And, and so who's provoking you now? Are there any kind of new new faces that you'd, you'd point us towards? Well, it, it, it's strange in a way you can... You talk to different people about their, their theoretical influences and, and different theorists speak to different people in, in different ways. What I find myself doing is, is, in fact, constantly going back to Foucault rather than moving on anywhere else. That I, I'm, I come across new problems, new questions, uh, and I go back and I, I reread Foucault and I find new ways of thinking about them. I find things in Foucault on the second reading and the third reading that I, I didn't in the first. So in a way, I'm, I'm stuck, you could say, with Foucault. And I, I, I have an enormous collection of both uh, primary sources, his own work, and, and, and a, a very small uh, set segment of the enormous Foucault industry of, of secondary resources. But in terms of you, you were making the distinction between critique and criticism, and I mean, this was something that you, you've written recently, um, the errors of a redemptive sociology, kind of drawing on that, those arguments. I mean, what were you trying to get across there? You were talking about the consistent failings of sociology of education to challenge the basic building blocks of education. I mean, that's very much along the lines of what you just said about Foucault. I mean, it was partly, I mean, also partly about myself, uh, constantly working on and thinking about one's relation to oneself and my own career. And I think for, for a great, the majority of that career, I, I was a redemptive sociologist. I saw at some level my role being to save education from the deleterious impact of neoliberalism or the forces of regression uh, or neoconservatism, whatever they might be. And 
in a way, I, I neglected to, to think about what education is in itself, irrespective of those iterations or influences or nuances. And, and I've come to realize belatedly that in, in fact, really the, the problem is, is the school and, and the school for many of us to a great extent is education. That's what we think about. So sociology has, has devoted itself to, to saving, reforming, improving, perfecting the school. And I now believe that that's, that's a doomed enterprise. It's an irredeemable institution. The problem is the institution of the school. And as part of that, we've also neglected the fact that sociology came into being in relate, sociology of education, that is, in relation to the school as, as, a, as one of the technologies of government, which were aimed at civilizing the, 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 in particular, the working class urban population that emerged in the 19th and 20th century. But we, we distance ourselves from that and see ourselves as having a separate position over and against the school. Whereas in fact, we have been and continue to be profoundly implicated and imbricated in the maintenance of the school as an institution. So it's a form of self-critique, if you like. So if we've been part of the problem, how can we be part of a solution if there is a solution? I mean, where should we be looking if not the school? Well, I think on the, the, the first move has to be one of, of, of exploring and coming to grips with this, this, um, uh, this tension or this contradiction in, in terms of sociology. We have to break our addiction to the school as, as the, the, the primary vehicle uh, or meaning for, for education. And we also have to dispense with the, the architecture that then constructs the school. Uh, if, you, if you look at most criticisms, they are related to the idea or based on the idea that um, we've got the wrong curriculum, we've got the wrong pedagogy, uh, and we've got the wrong forms of assessment. And if we get them right, then everything will be all right. And so what I'm saying is actually the problem is pedagogy, curriculum, and assessment in themselves. So the first move has to be to create a space in which it's possible to think about education without reconstructing it on the basis of the, uh, the architecture that, that constructed it as a, a modernist institution. I realize that's an enormously difficult thing to begin to think about. And I've had some fascinating conversations with people as a result of the paper. And it has been intriguing to see how deeply wedded people are, even, even if you like radicals, are wedded to the school. Um, so many of the conversations are littered with, yes, but, yes, but we need the school. Yes, but the school does this. Yes, but the school is fundamental to the opportunities of working class children. And moving beyond that is, is the challenge, moving beyond the, the, the yes, buts, to actually think openly about doing things in a way that starts from somewhere else. It's the sort of classic situation of if I wanted to get there, this wouldn't be where I started. But this brings us on to COVID and the pandemic. I mean, if there's ever been a moment when school has been interrupted, if not disrupted, it's been the past few months. I mean, what have you made of, of education, education policy? I mean, over the past few months of the pandemic, I mean, what manoeuvrings and formations do you see 
taking place. And do you see this as, as a tipping point, as many reformers say, you know, when schools are going to have to have to reform or die? I think there, there, there are two ways to think about that. I mean, one, one is that it's possible that, that this, this is a blip that it is an interruption uh, and that normal service will be resumed as soon as a vaccine is available and that the, the conception of the school will not necessarily be fundamentally disrupted by all this. That's one possibility. The other, as you say, is that some significant changes will ensue. But in terms of the way the schools operate, you, you could say that the, the most significant response has been the attempts to develop systems of remote learning. I mean, they were always there and you've written about them extensively, but this has created uh, an opportunity for business and for government working together to extend the range, uh, the scale and the possibilities of remote learning. And some businesses have, have taken that opportunity wholeheartedly. Google and Microsoft around the world offering their, their basic platforms for free until this month, um, signing up uh, thousands of new, probably millions of new account holders, tying in schools to their basic uh, platforms, excluding other competitors from, the, from access to schools through their, their collaboration with government. So, so that has taken off enormously. And that could bring about significant changes in the, the, the formation of students as, as, as subjects, as learners. And I've, I've written about that with uh, Emiliano Grimaldi. But on the other hand, it also raises some very straightforward modernist questions. In the UK, of those households with an income of less than £41,000 a year, only just over 50% have internet access. Surveys recently looking at the period of the lockdown of schools showed that students in only 24% of state schools were regularly engaged in remote learning. It was 57% in private schools. But what that demonstrates, so what those figures demonstrate, are both digital inequalities and the, 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 the re, re-articulation of very traditional inequalities related to uh, economics and employment. But also, in fact, that there is still an enormous gap between the imaginary of remote learning and everybody having access to teaching and learning software on their computer and the reality of that on a day-to-day basis. So I think, I think some of the, the rather overblown versions of the role of remote learning, teaching and learning software, have to be tempered both by the, the economic and the practical issues of, of who and how many students are actually engaged in this. So, so we, need, we need to research that. We now have some research questions that need to be addressed. But also if, if the reform of, of school or the displacement of school isn't going to come from the corporation, I mean, should we be looking towards community and, and the commons and th- rethinking school along those lines? Or I mean, in, in a sense, you can say that the, the, the private sector is involved in the, re- the reform of school in, in their own terms. I mean, they, they have an interest in certain forms of schooling, but articulated again through the provision of, of assessment, curriculum and pedagogical software. Uh, which are which are highly traditional in a 
highly technologically developed sense. They're a move, but they're not a, a shift, if you like, and they're not a, uh, a disruptive move. They're an elaboration which serves their own interests. So yes, I mean, I think we would have to, to, to look elsewhere. And I think one of the other things that, that all this has demonstrated is certainly in the case of the UK governments or the UK governments and, and others that I've seen it elsewhere, is, is that the problem of education that has been demonstrated or produced by COVID is students falling behind. And there's this worry about falling behind. Um, and what that indicates is a highly impoverished notion of education, that it's, it's a, a linear um, additive model, banking model of knowledge, as, as Frere would put it. That, that's, that's what the education system is about. It's highly deficient and inadequate in terms of issues around uh, well-being, uh, social relations, uh, personal growth, uh, citizenship, uh, the possibility of, of uh, creative uh, engagement with learning process. So if, if there, there can be more focus around those issues and we start somewhere different, rather than starting with knowledge as the basis of schooling, if we could start without the school to think about creativity as the basis of education or as i would want to argue self-formation as the basis of education then perhaps we would be able to begin to do things differently <laughs> what a great place to kind of uh, finish off your career it sounds like you need to start all over again I like the idea of coming and uh, finishing your career with some big answers. You've just finished with some massive questions. I just had a couple of more, more questions to ask. I mean, one of the things, we've talked a lot about sociology of education. I'm really interested in policy sociology and more specifically the original intentions that you all had when that field started in the 1980s. And kind of looking back 40 years later, I mean, how do you see that the project of policy sociology is having played out? I mean, what's the current health of it? I mean, the term, the term was coined by Jenny Oscar. And, and basically, she was saying a number of things. But basically, she was saying that we need more in the way of sociological sensibilities, sociological tools and theories in the work of policy analysis. That up until the 1980s, policy analysis was mainly produced within the framework of political science. Fairly conservative, uh, fairly untheoretical, conceptually very um, descriptive. So sociology offered the possibility of a more theoretically informed, uh, conceptually rich uh, approach to the, the, the analysis of policy. And, and that's what I hitched my wagon to, in a sense. That, that was what I wanted to do. And I, I in particular, as we've talked about already, I, I use Foucault um, as a way of doing that. And I, I think it's, it's taken off um, in, incredibly. And it's become a very vibrant field in its own right. And there are now a, a number of, I think, outstanding contemporary uh, scholars, uh, particularly Australians, in fact. Uh, for some reason, Australia has, has become one of the key uh, global points of focus for policy sociology. The whole range of people currently working, I think, are producing excellent work. People like Sam Seller, Matthew Clark, uh, Clover Galson, and, and, and many others. Um, so I, I think this, from my point of view, the, the state of the field is, is very healthy and, it, and it's in, in good hands. 
continually moving on, I think, which is also important. It's not kind of stuck with one set of ideas and one set of possibilities. People are bringing new possibilities into play. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that. I'm very pleased about that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a big legacy. I mean, my final question was actually looking forward to the future of higher education and particularly working in higher education. It doesn't look particularly bright at the moment. So, I mean, would you be encouraging new researchers to kind of follow in your footsteps and embark in a career of academic research? I mean, what advice would you have for beginning and early career researchers? You're, you're right. It's a very difficult time. And, and going back to what I just said, in some ways, it's becoming more and more difficult to ask the sort of questions or, or take up the sort of approaches that policy sociology allows for, because those are not the kinds of research that, that's, that's currently encouraged or wanted or, or funded. Research specifically and the university generally become incredibly neoliberalized. Now the, the, the pressure is towards uh, searching for funds of whatever kind, for whatever reason, as long as they generate income. Uh, and an increasing number of, of scholars are now driven by the money rather than by the questions, I think. And I'm, I'm very sad to say that. Uh, but I think that's, that's the direction of, of travel. And I can see that in my own institution very much. So there are two big issues. One is whether there's, there are possibilities for employment at all uh, in, a, in, a, in a shrinking full-time workforce. And higher education in the UK has the second highest proportion of um, temporary, short-term and zero-hours contract workers in the whole economy after tourism and um, uh, leisure. So there's that. But also, if you are lucky enough to get employed, there are these new expectations and constraints about how it is possible to be an academic. And in a sense, the, the, the university has, has become one of the major victories, one of the major success stories of neo, neoliberalism. The majority of universities around the world now, certainly in, in the West, are, are businesses. They operate like businesses, they think like businesses, they make decisions like businesses. And that is impinging upon what it means to be an academic, what it means to be a scholar, what it means to be a researcher. And again, raises the question that I started with of, of what it is we have become. All I can say in a, in a positive sense is, is that, that we, we need people who are willing to struggle against that in terms of, uh, of not being content to become like that, to be like that, to question, to, to act back, to um, engage in, in, in small acts of resistance which enables them to preserve a sense of themselves as questioning scholars, critical scholars, who can do something useful in relation to the things we take for granted in the world. And that's something that senior academics ought to do as well. It shouldn't just fall to early career researchers to cause good trouble. Absolutely. Well, thanks ever so much for, for taking the time to do this, Stephen. I really, really appreciate it. It's been really interesting to catch up with you again. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing, seeing what you produce next. Okay. Well, nice to talk to you across the world. And uh, I hope you flourish and uh, um, remain healthy.